Hey, before I jump into our passage, I just want to mention in just in a, two months, just two months, we are launching our, our, our first of several new campuses. Uh, this one we're launching in Streamwood, Tri-Village Church, we're calling it. We're praying that God would raise up a nucleus of 200 people from Wheaton Bible Church, this campus, and go be a part of that new campus for at least a year. And I want you to consider, prayerfully consider, being a part of our new initiative, this new campus. And I want all of you to be praying that God will do incredible things as we start this one, and then two years we start a, a, a second, and then we go to a third. Uh, this all together is one of the biggest things we've ever done as a church, and we're about 60 days out. And will you mark these next 60 days by praying that all sorts of people will come to Christ in the months and the years ahead as we expand our ministries and as we move into a, becoming a multi-site church. Now this morning I want to begin by sharing with you an experience I had on the 4th of July. I wish it was humorous, but it's not. I was watching the fireworks when suddenly I felt unsettled and disturbed. It took me a minute to kind of connect some of the dots, but I realized that what was going on in, inside of me as I'm watching these beautiful, fantastic fireworks is... Uh, that I had this growing sense of uneasiness because of, of the growing chaos, death, uh, brutality that, that we're experiencing here in the United States and all around uh, the world. I, I, I was struggling. I mean, think about just this last week, Chris uh, mentioned this, since the 4th of July. I, I, I felt in that moment, watching the fireworks, like somewhere, somehow, we had crossed a line as a nation in, in our world. And we are now in far greater danger, we are far more vulnerable, we are way more unstable than we were just 10 years ago. And frankly, for the first time in my life, the fireworks felt hollow. I was thinking about terrorism and tyranny. I was thinking about rampant immorality, rampant injustice, uh, racism, the crassness of our political situation. Uh, I was thinking of the uh, fracturing of families and, and on and on. And I'm watching the fireworks and, and this hit me like a freight train I didn't see coming. And so I tuned out the fireworks and I began to plead with God to have mercy on us. Now I don't want you to misunderstand, I'm not an angry, bitter, depressed kind of guy. I'm an optimist at heart, always have been, my kids say to a fault. I, I'm a fun, loving guy, just turned 63 and I've had a couple of days of barefoot water skiing that were just glorious. Now don't tell the elders. I promise, don't, don't tell them. Uh, but Christianity is not a game. It's not a therapy. Evil is real. And the Bible tells us it's not a question of if 
global and personal catastrophe is coming. It's only a question of when. So today, in the midst of our series on Jeremiah, I want to pull out three critical truths from our passage that must, simply must, inform our worldviews so that we can stand in the face of increasing global chaos, suffering. And so we, as the church of Jesus Christ, can be a part of the solution. Now, if you're visiting with us this morning, I want you to know that this Old Testament book of Jeremiah is an enormously difficult, complicated book. And one of the reasons it's so difficult is because it's hardly a feel-good book of the Bible. Uh, this morning isn't going to be a feel-good message. You see, Jeremiah was a prophet, not a bullfrog. Uh, those of you that are older understand that. Actually, Jeremiah was one of the greatest prophets in the entire Old Testament because he was given one of the most difficult assignments in the entire Old Testament to preach to Israel who refused to listen. And this all took place in the darkest hour in Israel's history, right at the end of Israel's history. As Israel, uh, the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom had already been destroyed, as the southern kingdom is about to be destroyed, collapsing under the collective weight of her sin. So Jeremiah is writing in a dark time about a dark subject. I want you to grab your Bibles now and let's turn to our passages. Two chapters, Jeremiah 18 and 19. Uh, turn on your Bible, grab your Bible. Uh, there's Bibles in the racks in front of you. It's page 773 in, in most of those Bibles in front of you. And what these two chapters, the reason for two, these two chapters have something in common. They both use pottery and the image of God as the divine potter to drive home three critical truths. Number one, God is sovereign. Number two, God will judge sin. And number three, God is merciful. Now think about this in our context. Because God is sovereign, we don't panic. We have hope. Because God will judge sin, we can forgive and not hate. And because God is merciful, we don't withdraw as the church. The evangelical church in America spent almost the first half of the 20th century withdrawing. We don't withdraw. Rather, we go into the world and we extend compassion. So let's pick it up. Jeremiah chapter 18 and verse 1. The metaphor is so rich here. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house, and there I will give you my message. So I went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred. In his hand, so the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as seemed best to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me. He said, can I not do with you, Israel, as the potter does? Like clay in the hand of the potter, so you are in my hand, Israel. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom, any nation, any kingdom, is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, 
and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. And if at another time I announce that a nation or a kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I intended. Now therefore say to the people of Judah, those living in Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says, look I am preparing. Now that word is the same word used for pottery, it's shaping a disaster for you and devising a plan against you. So turn from your evil ways, each one of you. Reform your ways and your actions. But they, that is Israel, will reply, it's no use. We will continue with our own plans and we will all, all, all follow the stubbornness of our evil hearts. This is a picture of much of the world today. Now, 2,600 years ago, when this was written, every village of any size in Israel had a potter who on the uh, fringes of the uh, village had his potter's house because there was a lot of uh, kiln and a lot of heat going on, and he worked a potter's wheel. Now, I'm going to show you a couple modern pictures of potter's wheels uh, because this phrase... Uh, where we read the, the potter is, is at the wheel is literally in the Hebrew at two stones because ancient potter's wheels were one bigger stone at the bottom, one smaller stone at the top. Let's go to the next picture. You see uh, this. This is a, a modern picture. And the bottom stone was spun with the feet while the clay was formed on the upper stone. And that's exactly the imagery here. Now this is all a metaphor, right? It's all a figure, it's all a picture. And the point of the metaphor is God is sovereign. He is sovereign in everything in our lives individually and in everything in the nations. Now what is God's sovereignty? Well, God's sovereignty is his rule, his authority, his control. Uh, as the sovereign or king over his creation. In other words, uh, God is to you and me and the nations what the potter is to the clay. Now this is a common biblical metaphor. Isaiah, the book that precedes the book of Jeremiah, uses this metaphor frequently. Look at chapter 66 or 64 and verse 8. Yet you, Lord, are our father. We are the clay, you are the potter, we are all, all, all the work of your hand. Now in the New Testament, Paul picks this up in Romans chapter 9. And Paul says, but who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it? Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay, the same pottery for special purposes and some for common use? The point of all this, the point of this metaphor, is that God can and will do whatever he wants with us. This is what the Bible tells us it means for God to be God. We are the clay. He is the potter. Now this is extremely distasteful 
to us today. Even in some quarters in the church. So some people get around this by saying, you know, not all the clay is alike. Some is more resistant than others. But that misses the point of the metaphor and gives way too much credit to the clay. Others say, well, hold on, Rob. Look at verses 7, 8, 9, and 10. Here we read that God changes his mind based on the response of people. I mean, God says, if they repent, I will relent. So therefore, his sovereignty is limited by human choices. No. The problem is that elsewhere, the Bible clearly and frequently teaches that God is unchanging in his person, in his purposes, predestination, election, and in his promises. He's unchanging. So when we come to verse 7, and verse 7 speaks of God uh, relenting, it's another way of saying God responds differently to different situations. Just as a parent does with the 16-year-old. I'm so glad you got your license. Here are the keys. Yeah, uh, you can take the car. But then two weeks later and two speeding tickets later, that same parent says to the same 16-year-old, you will not drive again until you retire. You see, the parent is just responding differently to different situations. The parent hasn't changed. The purposes of the parent haven't changed. Uh, the, the situation has changed. That's what's going on here when we talk about God relenting. But God is warning Israel. God is warning Israel to stop speeding. Or she's going to perish on the highway. God is offering Israel one last chance, but God's sovereignty is absolute. It is never, ever limited by our actions. He is the potter, we are the clay. But the biggest problem we have with this today comes from our culture, and it regularly seeps into the church. Uh, let me state it this way. 50 years ago, our culture uh, told us that what was the most important thing in life was to be a good person. Fifty years later, what is our culture telling us? Our culture is telling us the most important thing is to be a free person. To do whatever you want, whenever you want. But it's not working. Uh, to say there is no potter, there is no God, or the clay is the potter, and we are sovereign over our own lives is not getting us where we hoped it was going to get us because we all become enslaved to our own idols. Think alcoholism, pornography, materialism. Uh, think of uh, 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 being enslaved to appearance to success, the success of your kids, and on and on. Yes, I, I understand that the sovereignty of God appears to be limiting. But the reality is just the opposite. Because it's the existence of God and the, uh, the existence of, uh, of a sovereign God that liberates you and me to be the people that we were created to be. The, frame, the train, the train is not free unless it's on the tracks. 
the, the clay only becomes beautiful in, in the hands of the potter. Uh, so uh, let me press this a little far, far further. Think about the most difficult thing you've been through the last couple of weeks. Uh, the most stressful thing. Uh, what you're, you're most worried about. If God is the potter and you really believe it, then you are, are free to let him shape every detail, every detail of your life according to his good pleasure. Well, wait a minute, Rob. What about suffering and evil? Well, think about Israel here. Israel was circling the drain. The lights are about to go out. Uh, but God doesn't say Israel because of the... Uh, uh, horrific experience you're about to have uh, obviously that that proves my weakness no god says i am in control submit to me trust me the, the coming catastrophe is part of my plan i am the potter this is exactly what Paul says in Romans chapter 8 in the New Testament when the Apostle Paul says, and we know that God works all things. We know that God works all things, all things, all things together for good. Not that all things are good, but he works all things together for good. And in the very next book of the Bible after Jeremiah, it's Jeremiah's second book. It's the book of Lamentations. And look at how Jeremiah describes the sovereignty of God. Lamentations chapter 3. Who can speak and not have it happen if the Lord is not decreed it? It is not, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both note calamities and good things come? Uh, my point is that as the foundations loosen, crack, waffle, we cling to the sovereignty of God. Because if we don't, we'll panic. If we don't, we won't have hope. Uh, my, my point is, I want you to understand the sovereignty of God is your friend, not your enemy. Now, yes, there's mystery here, lots of mystery here. How God can govern all events in the universe both good and bad, without sinning and without removing responsibility from mankind is mysterious. But God works all things together for good. The sparrow falling to the ground, eyesight that fails, financial loss, a financial wipeout, Disaster, suffering, death, and on and on. God doesn't ask us to understand everything. He asks us to submit to his sovereignty. I am the potter, you are the clay. And I have found, through the experience of the death of my first wife, that apart from the sovereignty of God, I wasn't going to make it. And the sovereignty of God became precious to me. 
and to, to our family, to, to my kids, as we realized that this was somehow a part of God's plan, God's difficult assignment for our particular family at this particular point in time. And so God is calling Israel to obey him. He is the potter. And church, I want to say to you this morning, just after the 4th of July, 2016, as global suffering increases, and we don't, you don't have to be a prophet to see what's going on around you, if you, if you surrender hope, or let me say it this way, you will surrender hope. If you sacrifice sovereignty, don't do that. Okay, let me go on. Truth number two, and that is that God will judge sin. God will judge evil. If not in this life, as he does with Israel here, then in the life to come. Now let's jump to the next chapter. Here the metaphor changes same metaphor, just used differently. Chapter 19, verse 1. This is what the Lord says. Go and buy a clay jar from a potter. Take along some of the elders and the people and the priests and go out to the valley of Ben-Hinnom near the entrance of the potsherd gate. Now that was in the southwest corner of Jerusalem. There proclaim the words I tell you and say, hear the word of the Lord, you kings of Judah and people of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Listen. I am going to bring a disaster on this place that will make the ears of everyone who hears of it tingle. For they have forsaken me and made this place a place of foreign gods and have burned incense in it to gods that neither they nor their ancestors nor the kings of Judah ever knew. And they have filled this place with the blood of the innocent, children that Israel has sacrificed to other gods. Now skip down to verse 10. So God continues speaking to Jeremiah and he says, then break the jar while those who go with you are watching and say to them, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I will smash this nation and this city just as the potter's jar is smashed and cannot be repaired. Now here the metaphor changes, as I, as I said, instead of focusing on the potter, now the focus in chapter 19 is on the pottery. Uh, smashing it. Uh, to make vivid that sin is real, that sin has consequences, that God hates human sin. Now, now, don't misunderstand. God is a patient God. He has been calling Israel to repent for centuries. But Israel's refused. And there is a day when God's patience gives way to God's judgment. And that's the metaphor here in chapter 19. So in just a few years, 586 B.C., the Babylonians will come in and level Israel and take the uh, some of the few remaining Jews into captivity, into the Babylonian exile. Now, uh, think about this. Go back to chapter 18 and verse 7. Let me make an application. Uh, notice that in, in, in verse 7, God is talking about any, any nation, any kingdom. 
He, he says, if a nation, if, if, if a kingdom. In other words, what God is saying is what God is about to do with Israel, he will do with any nation, including the United States. Including the United States. Unless there's repentance. Now you say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. How can a loving God judge people, destroy people, and send people to hell? And the answer is, we need to think deeply about the love of God. You see, if God exists and he has created the world, then God is a loving God. And if God is a loving God, then he will also get angry. I mean, think of a husband or wife that's been cheated on or a parent that's been lied to. Love gets angered at sin, at betrayal, at deception. And the greater your love, the greater the potential for anger. So God, who opposes sin and anything in our lives that hurts our relationship with him, judges sin. Now, you, you can't have love without wrath. It doesn't work in marriage, doesn't work in families, doesn't work among friends, and it doesn't work with God. So when Jeremiah smashes the jar in, in, in chapter 19, it not only points to the coming destruction of Israel, it points to the final judgment and hell. And I remind you, most of what we know about hell comes to us from the New Testament and specifically the teaching of Jesus because Jesus talked frequently about love and grace and heaven and hell. So for example, look at what he says in the last verse here in Matthew 25. But they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So what is hell according to Jesus? It is a place of conscious, unending suffering and punishment. Unending. Jesus says eternal. Now, do you see how this helps us face calamity, tragedy, catastrophe? Well, the fact that God judges sin satisfies our need for justice. There is justice in the universe. And therefore, it enables us to extend forgiveness rather than vengeance, rather than hate. It's your belief in the justice and the judgment of God that frees you to forgive. That's exactly what Paul says in Romans chapter 12 and verse 19. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Leave it to me. You forgive. I will repay. The justice, the judgment of God, the coming final judgment makes forgiveness rational. As we turn the person who has hurt us over to God. I had a woman come up to me after the last service and said, now wait a minute, wait a minute, you mean I got to forgive the shooter in Dallas? And I said, well, what's the alternative? 
And we talked it through, and I said, yes. We leave vengeance with God. It's the gospel. Now, finally, what we, we see here, the judgment of God is a warning to unbelieving Israel to turn, to repent from her sin, and to live in submission to God. Now, there are a couple guys who write, who are authors, and I try to read a lot of what they write. One of those for me is a guy named John Piper, a pastor and a theologian. Look what he says in a very little book of his entitled Spectacular Sins. My aim is to show that sin and evil, no matter how spectacular, never nullify the decisive Christ-exalting purposes of God. These sins do not just fail to nullify God's purpose to glorify Christ. They succeed by God's unfathomable providence in making his gracious purpose come to pass. The cross, by the way, is the greatest illustration of that. This truth is the steel God offers to put in the spine of his people as they face the worst calamities. There will be tenderness in due time. But if the back of our faith is broken because we think God is evil or absent, who will welcome him when he comes with caresses? There will be much to endure without a way of seeing the world that can deal with massive evil and unremitting pain under the supremacy of Christ. We will collapse in self-pity or rage. And this is the opposite of love. If we are to endure and bear and believe and hope, we need to see the sins of history the way God sees them. Now hear me. Unless you believe in the sovereignty of God, that God is the potter, we are the clay. And unless you believe that God will judge sin, that God will smash and destroy all pottery that rejects him, unless you believe those two truths, then when calamity, catastrophe, tragedy, disaster hits, you will falter and fail. And you will move either to anger or self-pity. You will panic. And you will lose hope. And you will hate. And not forgive. This brings me to truth number three. Uh, how, how do we live like this? How do we live above the fray? And the answer is by clinging equally to this final truth. And it's the truth that, according to our passage, God is merciful, God is forgiving. God is a God of abundant second chances. The healthy Christian life is a new beginning every day, every hour. Now, therefore, because God is merciful, God is forgiving, we do not withdraw. We go into the world and we extend mercy. We seek the good of all people. Now, go back to chapter 18, verse 4. Look at this. I love this verse. Chapter 18, verse 4, but the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hand. So what did the potter do? Well, he formed it into another pot as he seemed best. This is an incredible picture of God's love and compassion. The clay is marred. The clay is spoiled. But the potter doesn't walk away in disgust. The potter doesn't reject it. The, the, the potter doesn't destroy the marred clay. Instead, 
in his grace and love and, and mercy, if, if that person, if that nation uh, turns from its sin, owns its sin, turns from its sin, then God will make them new. He will reform, he will shape, reshape. And it does not, it does not, it does not matter how marred we are. Ultimately, verse 4 hints at and points to the saving work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, now, now what's the saving work of Christ? Well, well, let me unpack it in light of Jeremiah. Look at verse 17. Let's put this up. Like a wind from the east, those were horrible winds that, that came through Israel. I, I will scatter them before their enemies. I will show them my back. That's what I want you to know, my back, not my face, in the day of their disaster. That's what uh, ancient Near Eastern ki kings did as a sign of judgment. They would turn their pack up back on, on the people it's a picture of judgment so when jesus christ went to the cross what happened verse 17 happened god turned his back on christ as jesus absorbed uh, the weight of our sin the penalty of our sin by dying in our place as the sacrificial lamb, as, as the substitute. God turned his back on his son. So that when we believe in Christ, he reshapes us. He reforms us. He, he, he makes us new. So that he will never ever going forward turn his back on us. Instead he will turn his face towards us. Just as a a mom, a dad does towards the child he or she loves. But apart from a firm conviction in the sovereignty of God, apart from a firm conviction in the, of the judgment of God, we can't make any sense of the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus Christ was judged by God. God turned his back. Another way to say it is Jesus Christ died on the cross to reverse the curse of verse 17. So God can show us his face, his glory. God is the divine, glorious potter who is so merciful he will make all things new because his son died the death we deserved so that when we believe in Jesus and receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior and we submit to Jesus as we turn the keys of our life over to Jesus, we will then be treated by God the way Jesus deserves. And it doesn't matter how marred we are. And now we're back to the beginning. This table, well, what is the communion table? Well, the communion table is a picture of the potter at his wheel. And because God is sovereign, we don't panic. Because God judges sin, we forgive. And because God is merciful, we extend mercy. We go into the world. And so church, 
we, according to the plan of God, live in a crazy time. Let's not retreat. Let's not hate. Let's love. And if you are here and you have never come to Jesus Christ, come to Jesus. Before the potter says, there is no more time. Let's pray. Father, would you open our eyes as we see what's going around us, going on around us, to think biblically. So instead of being a part of the problem, we can be the light, the salt and the light that Jesus calls us to be. Would you give us that grace? We pray that you would have mercy on the United States. We pray that you would have mercy on the countries of the world. We have no idea what's ahead. But we need you, God, to have mercy on us. In Jesus' name.